Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And this is going to be part two of a two-part episode about the attention economy, the technosphere, the war for your eyeballs, and the fact that we live in a technological economy that in which platforms and apps and devices are constantly trying to suck in your attention, and they're succeeding. They're working so good. If you have not listened to our first episode, you should go back, listen to that first. That's where we lay the whole groundwork, try to explain the problem of what's going on with the attention economy today. Uh, but just as a quick refresher, if you've already listened to the episode, to put it back in your mind, what did we talk about last time? We basically talked about the attention economy, the idea that your attention, my attention, it is a, a depletable, finite resource. And every time there is a pop-up on our phone, every time we o- obey the impulse to check Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or what have you, it is depleting not only precious time, but precious energy and precious will. Right. It's It really matters. It's taking us away from the things that we would like to be doing with our time ultimately to get what we want out of life, the things that really matter to us, and instead putting us into these easy, habitual modes of passive consumption of digitally supplied information and entertainment that, that ultimately we can end up feeling hollow and regretful after we experience, right? Yeah. Even if it's not hurting us, causing us direct harm, I think there's some evidence that it is actually hurting us in the sense of what we talked about with by constantly interrupting us. It's lowering our cognitive performance, making us less smart by constantly pulling us out of focus on tasks and interrupting us all the time and just having us always aware of like the interruption threat of a new message or notification or something. So it might actually be harming us. But even if it's not harming us, it's causing us to voluntarily spend our time and attention in ways that are not what we want out of life. And we end up feeling regretful. And in a way, we are victims of shock, future shock. Future Shock. Tell me about Future Shock. Ah, yes. Well, okay. So listen, long-time listeners to the show might remember that we, we had a, a two-parter years and years ago about the about Future Shock. Alvin right. Toffler. Alvin Toffler's 1970 book and just general idea of Future Shock. Also, there is a wonderful, I think, 1972 TV documentary it's about the concept. Super Cronenbergy. Yes, it has kind of a Twilight Zoney Cronenbergy vibe, and it's narrated by Orson Welles. It's a it's a little overwrought, as you might imagine, uh, but it's still very good. It's it's all on YouTube. You should be able to find it. So I've never actually read this book. I know it's a classic work of futurism, uh, and I should read it at some point, but I haven't read it. So Robert, can you explain to me the idea of Future Shock? All right. So the book itself, which is still a fine read, uh, even though it is again an a decades-old book at this point, but it touched on a number of contemporary and looming aspects of technological advancement, including overchoice, uh, pressure to keep up with the latest technology, rapidly expanding knowledge, information overload, computer-fueled society, temporary consumer culture, young, new, transient lifestyles, uh, instant intimacy, as well as more sort of... uh, Sci-fi ideas, you might say, such as cyborgs, modular bodies, and prosthetics. 
Okay, but how's this come into the idea of the attention economy? Did Toffler actually predict that we would be in this situation of being surrounded by, by machines that so efficiently drain away our attention? He did. He did, in fact. So I, I want to read a passage here from Future Shock. For while we tend to focus on only one situation at a time, the increased rate at which situations flow past us vastly complicates the entire structure of life, multiplying the number of roles we must play and the number of choices we are forced to make. This, in turn, accounts for the choking sense of complexity about contemporary life. Moreover, the speeded-up flow-through of situations demands much more work from the complex focusing mechanisms by which we shift our attention from one situation to another. There is more switching back and forth, less time for extended peaceful attention to one problem or situation at a time. This is what lies behind the vague feeling noted earlier that, quote, things are moving faster. They are around us and through us. So that sounds like, for one thing, some recognition of a thing we mentioned in the last episode, the task shifting penalty, right? Mm -hmm. That we're downgrading the quality of our cognition by constantly shifting between focus on different tasks. But it's more than that, right? Yeah. He he, uh, he goes on in this section of the book and says, quote, all this represents the press of engineered messages against his senses. And the pressure is rising. In an effort to transmit even richer image-producing messages at an even faster rate, communications people, artists, and others consciously work to make each instant of exposure to the mass media carry a heavier informational and emotional freight. Whoa. I want to read just one more uh, quote here from the book because this touches on sort of a uh, – again, this was like 90, late 60s that he would have been writing this okay. uh, to, to ground it. But I think it's very ap- applicable to some of what we're discussing here today. Okay. He said, quote, the religious fervor and bizarre behavior of certain hippie cultists may arise not merely from drug abuse, but from group experimentation with both sensory deprivation and bombardment. The chanting of monotonous mantras, the attempt to focus the individual's attention on interior bodily sensation to the exclusion of outside stimuli are efforts to induce the weird and sometimes hallucinatory effects of understimulation. At the other end of the scale, we note the glazed stares and numb expressionless faces of youthful dancers at the great rock music auditoriums where light shows, split-screen movies, high-decibel screams, shouts and moans, grotesque costumes, and writhing painted (laughs) bodies create a sensory environment characterized by high input and extreme unpredictability and novelty. <laughs> now, now that's a fun passage because right. there is this sort of sense of oh, the the young hippies and the, their their craziness. Right. But but at at heart, this idea of over and under stimulation, this questing for bodily stillness in relation to this overly stimulated world, I, th- I think is is crucial to to what we're talking about here. And I think it kind of supports this idea that that Alvin Toffler warned us. Alvin Toffler told us so. He yeah. warned us of this future shock. Well, it makes me think about the inherent uh, fallacy where we would tend to assume that by having lots of input coming into the mind, 
that would essentially be an enriching experience, right? The mm-hmm. more input is coming in, the more stocks of information and wisdom you should be building up, right? Yeah. But I think that's not necessarily the case. In fact, having many information streams coming into the mind tends to instead confuse the input processing devices within the mind. And instead of enriching the mind, it sort of just numbs the mind. Yeah. Like the the idea that he touches on about overchoice, I feel overchoice uh, like crazy. I feel like any time that I am just casting about on, say, uh, Netflix to mm-hmm. see what I might be interested in watching, there's just there's so many options that I'll end up just scaling through them all and not watching anything, and ultimately right, yeah. have a completely unfulfilling uh, experience because I didn't actually view a movie on this this app, this service, this industry that is about delivering me a movie. Now, something I want to come back to in a minute is it's interesting because that app is different than many of the other things we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Many of the things we're talking about demand our attention because they are ad supported or because they're gathering data on the user Mm -hmm. in which the user's attention and the times they spend paying attention to the app is literally what's valuable to the content producer or to the platform. Right. Mm -hmm. Netflix is a different thing because it's subscription based. Right. And so you're paying to have access to it. So, like, why would they want you to keep paying attention? That's an interesting question. We can maybe talk about that a little bit more. But another point about Netflix I do want to make real quick is that, as we, I think, said last time, we don't want to demonize all consumption of information or entertainment through digital formats, right? Mm -hmm. Because ultimately, what you want when you use Netflix is to watch a movie, And we like watching movies like watching a movie is a valuable activity to me. And when it's a movie I like that I that I care about, uh, that is something that I feel like is worth doing with my free time. It's something that that brings me pleasure. And I'd say a similar thing for lots of the other apps I use. I enjoy the digital content I consume through my books apps. I enjoy the digital content I consume through my podcast apps. But one of the things that makes these apps a little more difficult to use, even though we get more enjoyment out of them, is that you have to make conscious decisions about how to use them, right? Yeah. You have to seek out the thing you want. I know I want to listen to this podcast. I know I want to listen to this musical album. I know I want to watch this movie, whereas we are served this content so much more passively and automatically by many of these other apps that make us feel regretful, by our social media apps and by the games that just sort of launch and then it's an incoming stream of stimulation. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, yeah. I, I, it, it does make me wonder to what extent these various uh, like Alexa-type products, uh, where you have some sort of a smart speaker that you talk to and then it fetches what you need. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that could be a way to mitigate this effect in the future where it's, it's, you have this robot that's essentially doing the, the surfing for you. Yeah. It's going to be the one dealing with the, and, and and ultimately not having to deal with uh, uh, the overchoice of uh, say a Netflix queue. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one thing we should explore in the second episode here is the idea of how, because like I said, we don't want to just demonize technology. It's not like digital platforms are inherently bad as mm-hmm. a concept. It's that they have taken on this form that is giving, a, that's taking away our attention and our lives without really giving us a lot of value, giving us always the things we want. Though sometimes we do get the things we want out of them. It's just that that's not always presented in such an engrossing and addictive way right. as the stuff we don't really ultimately want is. 
So how to make technology work better for us to give us what we actually want and actually care about, that's something that matters and it's a question we should address. But I think maybe we should take a quick break and we come back from that break, we will look at an essay about how these apps and devices are specifically engineered to hijack our brains. All right, we're back. So let's get into some of the specific tricks that are uh, that, that are involved here. Like, what what are these devices doing? All right, right here I want to turn to a 2016 essay by a guy we've mentioned, a guy named Tristan Harris, who's a former Google employee. Now he uh, found, he's one of the founders of this movement now called Time Well Spent, which is focused on exactly this issue we've been talking about over these past couple of episodes, the idea of the attention economy and the fact that our technological devices and apps are not really giving us what we want in terms of our attention investment, but they're they're nevertheless extremely powerful in harnessing that attention. And so Harris in this essay is trying to explain how it works, how they capture our attention so effectively, so powerfully, and how we are so powerless to resist. So he cites the fact that he was formerly a design ethicist at Google, and he spent his life studying security vulnerabilities in the human brain, ways to trick the brain and subvert its will without the person ever realizing what's happening. In his words, quote, how technology hijacks our psychological vulnerabilities. And he goes on to list 10 ways that technology manipulates and controls us invisibly. Uh, I'll try to mention them all, but explain a few of them in depth. One of them is that when you have a technological platform that allows people to use it freely, that platform controls the menu of options that people have available to them. And yet it still simulates the feeling of having free choice. Right. I mean, it's kind of like asking a five-year-old what they want for dinner. You you don't you don't let them have free range. Right. You, you don't give, say what do you want. You say do you want broccoli or spinach. You right. Know? You you give them the choices that you were already prepared to make, and you don't have a third choice that you that you were totally not into yourself. Right. And well, that makes a lot of sense with the child, and maybe sometimes with certain types of bosses. But that is also how these apps work. They have the feeling of giving us a lot of choice by giving us a menu of options of things to do. Mm-hmm. But also by discouraging us from wondering, why aren't I allowed to do different things that aren't on this list? Okay, so the idea here is, again, we have an illusion of choice, but we're still being uh, herded into a few pre-selected ideal choices. Right, and generally what those pre-selected ideal choices do is keep us engaged with the apps and platforms we're using. Mm -hmm. So instead of... Uh, instead of thinking of the open-ended question, who could I hang out with tonight? Instead, the apps on your phone encourage you to think, who are the most recent people I've been texting with mm-hmm. that I could ping about this and continue texting with? Right. <laughs> uh, or instead of what's happening in the world, an open-ended question, you could investigate lots of ways. It becomes, let's see what's happening on my news app feed. Mm-hmm. Keeps me engaged with the device and with the app on it. Yes, and which stories have been updated? And, okay, are they going to be updated now? Oh, I better check it again, see if that story's been updated once more. The second point that Harris makes, I think, is maybe the most important point on the whole list. He he draws a lot of attention to it, and I think this is very important. We've discussed slot machines on the show before. Yes, we... I. I I don't think it's uh, it's unfair for us to say that uh, that we do not like slot machines. <laughs> they are these highly advanced 
very smart, highly developed parasites that mm-hmm. are engineered perfectly to drain us of money by appealing to our reward-seeking minds. But why are slot machines so addictive? What's the trick? Like one of the things that uh, is pointed out in Harris's essay is that he cites the work of the NYU professor Natasha Dow Shul, author of Addiction by Design, which found that people get, quote, problematically involved with slot machines three to four times faster than they do with other types of gambling. So why would that be? Why are slot machines so much more effective at causing problem gambling behaviors than a craps table or a poker game? Well, I mean, on one hand, it's certainly a a far more mindless endeavor, right? You're just Mm -hmm. you're just uh, pulling the the lever. You're just essentially hitting refresh and seeing what happens. Am I a winner this time? Am I a winner this time? Yes. There's no there's no strategy. There's no there's certainly no card counting. It's just let me take another go at it and see what life, a.k.a. the machine that has been programmed to drain my money, uh, to see what it allows to happen. Yeah, and apparently the number one factor making slot machines so devilishly irresistible and addictive is what's called, quote, intermittent variable rewards. Intermittent variable rewards. This means that you create a circuit where a simple user action, just like you're talking about, pressing a button, pulling a lever, reloading a page, opening an app, a very simple action to do, leads to a variable reward at a variable rate. So variable reward means that when you complete the user action, sometimes you get nothing, sometimes you get a small reward, sometimes you get a big reward. And the variable rate means that it's not predictable when these rewards will come in a sequence of actions. Yeah, it's like, it's like checking Twitter, for instance. Yeah, I refresh, and who knows what I'll get? Maybe I'll might get it. Have a notification. Yeah, it Did might. Somebody at mention. Yeah, somebody's talking to me or about me, or my favorite comedian has a funny statement to make. There's a new trailer for a movie I want, or oh, uh, nuclear war. It could be, it could be anything. Right, or uh, the message inbox. Yeah, likes on a post or a tweet. The matches on a dating app. It's all intermittent variable rewards. You keep refreshing. You keep checking, hoping that there will be some reward. And sometimes there is. Sometimes Mm -hmm. there's something that's a little bit socially gratifying. Sometimes there's something that's a lot socially gratifying. Sometimes there's nothing. A lot of times there's nothing. And when there is nothing, that actually really keeps you checking it. It keeps you searching that next reward. So the intermittent variable rewards matrix is an extremely powerful exploit on the human mind. It's a it's a known vulnerability. And most tech devices like phones and stuff and the most used apps are making use of intermittent variable rewards. Now, Harris mentions that this kind of thing doesn't have to be an intentional design at first. Like apps could land on these strategies by accident. Mm -hmm. They didn't they didn't have to say, let's make it a slot machine from the beginning. But once it works like a slot machine, they realize that that's very effective at maximizing time on site or user engagement or repeated pickups throughout the day. Yeah, it's kind of a parallel evolution type situation, right, where this particular form moves the fastest through water. This is the design that has been selected. Okay, a third point Harris makes is that these apps encourage us to think, what if I miss something important? Yeah. Well, we have a bit, little bit of a fear of missing out and all of that. But also, yeah, I do want to know if there's nuclear war. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure why. Uh, there, there may not be much that I can do, but it's going to be some, it's, it's an important event and I need to know that it has happened. Another thing he mentions, 
our desire for social approval. They really play on this. Like we are largely social creatures with socially shaped brains. Yes. And we're highly motivated by feelings of social inclusion and approval and avoiding feelings of social exclusion and disapproval. So when somebody thinks to, quote, mention you on Facebook, you've seen this mm-hmm. uh, this capability, right? You can tag a person's name in a post on Facebook. This feels intensely rewarding to people. Yeah. I got mentioned. It, it was me. I'm I, I'm what this person was thinking about. Right. And then you click and you see, oh, wait, they tagged everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And Crap. so but unfortunately, these mentions, as rewarding as they feel, they don't spring forth directly from people's social relationships. You'll notice that Facebook tries to get people to do this. Mm-hmm. It tries to make you mention other Facebook users as often as possible, suggesting they be tagged in photos, suggesting they be named and tagged in the post you're making and so forth. Also, have you ever noticed how the Facebook newsfeed algorithm favors prominent and repeated display of posts that have comments saying the word congratulations? Huh, I have not noticed this. The, try this sometimes. Like if somebody posts something that has no congratulatory content, nothing worth congratulating in it, just start commenting congratulations on it. <laughs> I think that this moves that post up in the newsfeed and more people see it. And because they want to get people engaging with some kind of chain of social approval, which keeps people glued to the app. See, this is this is probably one of those situations where I would have assumed it had more to do with my attention. The idea that I'm more inclined to notice when somebody else has been congratulated on something. Yeah. And that may go in like negative or positive directions, right? Because it could be somebody that I deeply care about them or it's, you know, or it's me. Right. And of course I'm invested in them getting congratulations or I'm, I'm, I have this kind of bitter feeling where it's like, ah, the, look at that. They got a new puppy dog <laughs> and they're getting all these congratulations about it. I don't have a puppy dog. Right. Well, either way you're engaged, aren't yeah, you? That's true. Uh, but I, I, I don't know if that's the case. I really strongly think that's the case. Okay. That's not a point Harris makes about congratulations. That was just something I think I've observed. But I wonder. I really do see it seeming to get highlighted and moved up. Sometimes Facebook will even like bold the word congratulations in the comments as they display on your newsfeed. Uh-huh. Another point Harris mentions is playing upon our feeling of responsibility for social reciprocity. Mm. Somebody followed you. Better follow them back. Somebody wrote you a LinkedIn recommendation? Better write one for them. Oh, yeah. Here's a really devious iteration of this. Why did Facebook start doing that thing in Facebook Messenger where it tells the sender that the message has been seen? Oh, yeah. that's that. It's like they're just trying to get you in trouble for for dragging your feet on getting yes. back to somebody. It puts pressure on the recipient of a message mm-hmm. to respond. You can't pretend you haven't read the message. It tells them you saw it. So now you really need to spend some time in the app composing a response. Or or it's something like in uh, chat where it's saying Joe is typing a response. And you're yeah. like, oh, I wonder what he's chatting. Oh, he's, he's really been going at this for a while. This must be great. And then he never sends it. And you're like, oh, well, what was it? What was this epic poem that Joe is composing? I can't remember where I saw this uh, cartoon, but it was hilarious where I probably just saw it on some social media feed mm-hmm. huh? anonymously in the middle of the ether. But it was uh, where you you, t- you message somebody, um, hey, what did you think of my thing? You know, some something uh-huh. that you did. What did you think of my poem? And it's like so-and-so is typing. So-and-so is typing. So-and-so is typing. So-and-so is typing. <laughs> so-and-so is typing. Response. 
it was great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I've seen that, that sort of effect before as well. Oh, on, on the whole, um, uh, you know, following people back thing, I do have to add that, uh, surely I'm not alone that when I see like a celebrity Twitter account where they either have, they either like, they'll have like, you know, several million followers or whatever. But then if they follow zero people or only one person mm-hmm. or it's some pre-selected, uh, fun number, um, I kind of I always have this impulse to say you are a monster. What does it matter with you? Like I, I don't have that judgment about people who have you know, more followers than than people they're following. I mean, you can right. ultimately only follow so many feeds. I feel, uh, and certainly if you were a, if you were a celebrity, you're, there's going to be that imbalance. But when when these people have like I follow nobody, <laughs> I am my own voice, or right. or I follow one person and it is. The Lord, or so I don't know, whoever I'm too you good for all this. Yeah, it's it. It always kind of irks me. <laughs> okay, the next point Harris makes that they use is infinite displays, autoplay videos, infinitely scrolling news feeds. There's yeah. no natural stopping point. Yeah, yeah, you just keep going on down, down forever, and make you cannot get to the bottom of the screen. It's like playing Tetris. Yeah, and this is a psychological vulnerability as well because. Instead of having to actively select that you want to continue doing something, think about like if your Facebook news feed was paginated and mm-hmm. you had to click – you had to keep clicking to the next page Yeah. instead yeah. of just constantly scrolling down for infinity time. Yeah. It's harder to make a decision to stop and change what you're doing or to make a decision to do something than it is to just continue your passive consumption experience that's ongoing and unchanging. A next one, this is a big one. Instant interruptions. Yep. Does your phone wait and update you about notifications in batches separated by a few hours? No, of course not. <laughs> uh, I mean, most of the time by default, and there's going to be differences between different devices and apps and how they by default give you notifications. But generally, they're going to want by default to say something just happened right now. You need to check it immediately. It interrupts whatever you're doing to tempt you with an intermittent variable reward. And then once it tem- tempts you in, you're in there. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've, I've had to turn most of those off because it seemed like for a while I'd have like a major news organization app on my phone and, uh, they would send me an update and I'd think, oh, something important happened. I'd get kind of anxious about it. Right. Or is, is this, was there a, a nuclear explosion? Was there some sort of terrible event that occurred? And then no, it's a, a, a major sporting event score. Right. And it's like, I didn't even sign up for that. I, I, that's, but now I'm interrupted by it and now I'm mad about it. Yeah. Uh, two more Harris mentions, or actually three more, too, I want to mention briefly. One is putting the most profitable or attention-grabbing part of the app between you and the reason you opened the app. Hmm. So it's like you open the Facebook app to, to check on an event or to see a message or something, but it's going to try to route you through the news feed, right? Right. It's it kind of an exit through that. the gift shop kind of uh, scenario. Exactly. Uh, next thing is increasing the friction in making choices that tech businesses don't want you to make. So just making it more effort and more difficulty to unsubscribe or opt out of something. Oh, yeah. It, my favorite is, of course, you cannot unsubscribe through the app or the website. You have to call a number on yep. a particular day. Or how about the ones that they make it uh, – you have to opt out to make your account private on yeah. something. Things are public by default. you got to go in and mess with a bunch of toggling settings mm-hmm. to keep people from seeing the stuff you post. Finally, and this is one I want to – Discuss in a little more depth. Harris uh, points out that these apps and services use foot in the door sales strategies. So, Robert, you've bought a car, right? Uh, yes. 
And so if you've ever bought a car, you go to the, go to the car lot, the salesperson is trying to sell you on the car and you'll know that the salesperson makes all these kind of little bids for your continued engagement that are at no cost to you. Right. And so they feel easy and no risk. Like, why not just take a little test drive? I know you're not ready to buy yet. That's fine. You don't have to do anything today. Just take a test drive. It's free. It's low investment. Just take a few minutes. Just see what it feels like and make you can better inform your decision ultimately. Mm-hmm. And then you do the test drive and you're like, OK, well, I want to go think about it. And they they, they don't want to let you go. Oh, yeah. They want to say, actually, you know, I know you need time to think about it. That totally makes sense uh, that we don't want to force you to do anything. But I do want you to come inside real quick and just get something on paper so I can show you what kind of deal we can put together for you. That'll help inform your decision making if you're looking at some other cars. Yeah, you see the same thing with so many of these services where it's, hey, try it for seven days, see if you like it. exactly. And then when you go to unsubscribe, they're like, why didn't you like it? Was it too expensive? And and maybe they'll say, well, I'll tell you what, try it, 35% off. How about that? You know, they'll throw some sort of deal or they'll say, how about this? Maybe don't unsubscribe. Maybe just snooze us for a while. You know, you'll come back to it, a.k.a. you'll forget about us and then we'll charge you for the service. Exactly right. But with the car salesperson, what they're doing every time they they make a little bid for your continued engagement is they're exploiting psychological vulnerabilities. They know Mm -hmm. the more time you spend talking to them and if they can get you into a chair seated across from them at a desk looking at a piece of paper, they're psychologically advancing you toward the sale, making it more and more psychologically difficult for you to back out, even though you haven't committed to doing anything explicitly, mm-hmm. you're becoming more and more implicitly psychologically committed, and they just keep doing that. They're always advancing the sale. And so many of these social media apps work the same way. How about Kenny tagged you in a photo? Click to see the photo. Well, you might be in the middle of doing something, but if you get that notification, you're like, well, I can look at a photo. That just takes a few seconds. Yeah. Right? So you click to see the photo, but in Harris's words, quote, People don't intuitively forecast the true cost of a click when it's presented to them. And because you think click to see photo, that'll just take a few seconds. Okay, that's fine. I can invest those few seconds and look at the photo. But then you're in the app Mm -hmm. and all of the other stuff in the app is there. And you could click on other people or click to see more photos or end up back on the news feed and it's pulling you in. And that's how it works. They present you the idea that there'll just be a quick little investment. Instagram does stuff like this. You know, you want to see one thing. You got a message or you were tagged in a photo. There was something, just one little thing you need to check, but then you're scrolling. Right. Yeah. Ultimately, Harris ends the article by saying, quote, we need our smartphones, notification screens and web browsers to be exoskeletons for our minds and interpersonal relationships that put our values, not our impulses first. And so he's advocating that we need to redesign our technological landscape to make our technology serve what we want out of life rather than what's easy for us to do in the moment. Because what's easy for us to do in the moment is so easily exploited by people who are not working in our best interests. Yeah, I was, you know, I was thinking about this just the other day because uh, Facebook actually rolled out this little questionnaire. I don't know if you received this as well. No. Uh, asking, well, you know, what can we, what can we do to make the the world a better place? What can we do to to uh, to to help the the product uh, make your life better? Right. And uh, and I, you know, on one hand, I appreciated the outreach, albeit a you know a corporate um, technological outreach. Uh-huh. But on the other hand, I wanted to say, like, I'm talking to a machine. You are not a 
person, you were a corporation, you were a business, yeah. you were a technology. And I, I know what technologies want. I know what corporations want. Right. And they are not necessarily, they are, are they almost certainly not what I want. People think the wrong way about the evil that gets done by like tech businesses mm-hmm. and stuff. They often think that like, oh, you've got these snidely whiplash executives sitting up there thinking about how to wreck people's lives. And that that's not what happens. I mean, these businesses are like other businesses. They're full of people who are mostly decent people who are just trying to just trying to do a job and make a business and make a product that works. And the problem is with the incentives, the incentives in the structure of the business. The business incentivizes captivating as much of people's attention as possible. This is not presented to the people who work in these businesses as an overtly evil thing to do. It's presented in terms of things like engagement. Mm -hmm. So we want to make the app engaging. You want to make it something that people want to use. If people are using your app a lot, doesn't that seem like they're getting something out of it? I mean, you're not forcing them to do it. They're doing it because they want to. And so you can get locked in to this way of thinking about things uh, without ever making the decision to try to be evil and, and upset people's goals and hurt the quality of their lives. Well, it's kind of like with video game design. You know, you, you want to make a, a really fun game. Yeah. But then when the response is, hey, I'm sorry, you made that game a little bit too fun. It's making people sad. And th- well, there are different ways to make a fun game. Yeah. You could make a fun game that people, when they were done playing, felt good about the time they spent playing it. They're mm-hmm. like, I had fun. That was a fulfilling experience. I don't regret it. Yeah. You could also make a fun game that when people are done, they feel hollow and regretful and aren't glad they spent their time that way. Well, I'm always reminded of the old saying, uh, uh, leave while they're wanting you to stay. Yeah. That's, I encounter that all the time with these big games. Yeah. Like, it, it, I like a nice short game. Give me a, four-hour game, a six-hour game, one of those games that online reviewers criticize for being too short yeah. because that's probably the right length. Yeah. It's these big open-ended games where it seems like you just play them till you're sick of it. Yeah. You're like, this brings me no joy anymore, and I'm not sure why I'm playing it right now. Yeah, it's an overabundance problem. There's mm-hmm. too much supply of stimulating game and actually not enough demand of attention, right? Right. Um, and so I think this is a good way to transition to something that we've both read that's pretty interesting. It's an interview with another one of the co-founders of Time Well Spent, who's a guy named James Williams, a former Google employee as well, who started thinking, trying to become a technology ethicist, thinking about like how technology can serve what we want out of life and serve our values instead of just sucking our attention away in these mindless uh, activities. He actually wrote an essay called Stand Out of Our Light, and one excerpt from it is that he pointed out the problem is that digital technologies privilege our impulses over our intentions. Mm. And instead, they should help us in achieving our intentions, not just satisfying what we impulsively do when given the opportunity. But he talks about several things in this interview with Nautilus from 2017 that I think are really interesting. One of them is that Williams makes an appeal based on the economics of information. So he says, like, we used to live in a world in which information was scarce and attention was abundant. It was hard to find things out. Sometimes it was hard to entertain and stimulate your mind. Your local newspaper was a critical information resource because in many many cases, it was the only way you could find things out about the world. And one way I like to think about this difference over time is that people used to talk all the time about being bored. 
Oh, yes. To me, boredom is a word in attention economics terms of an attention surplus in an information scarce environment. Mm -hmm. You have attention to spend and nothing to spend it on. It's when the attention economy is in a state of high demand and low supply. Now we live in this completely opposite world where information is more than abundant. Your news source, whatever that is, is not your news source because you, you it's the only way you can learn about things. It's because it's your preferred source among thousands or functionally infinite numbers of sources. And the entertainment you turn to is not whatever is available. It's not the one channel on your TV. It's what you choose from a field of almost limitless options. Now what's scarce is not information, but the attention you have to spend on it. And increasingly, the role of information sources is not to provide you with information, which you could access a thousand different ways, but to focus your attention, to let you know which pieces of information are true, which are false, which are important, which are trivial. My own observation is that I think people often prefer certain news sources over others because they learn which ones will make them feel good. Yeah, yeah, which ones are going to confirm their view of reality. Yeah. And so Williams goes on to describe this modern technological economy, the attention economy, as, quote, a denial of service attack on the human will. Huh. So a denial of service attack is something you'd see in cybersecurity. It's when you get a bunch of computers or something bombarding, say, a website or some kind of uh, user-facing service, a website or a network, and they uh, they bombard it with so much traffic that it can't serve itself to legitimate users. So you try to go to the website and it won't load for you because it's getting so many requests for loading from all of these fraudulent uh, fraudulent bots and stuff like that. So a denial of service attack on the human will is the idea that there's so much coming at you and dema making demands on your attention, you can't really spend your attention intentionally. Yeah, I mean, it's the very real scenario of decision fatigue. At the end of the day, you've been you've made so many choices already, you cannot make the simplest choice of, say, what do I want to drink with my dinner? Right. You know, it's like, oh, I don't know, it's fizzy water or milk, but I cannot I cannot extend the willpower to make this one final choice. And, uh, you know, he touches on some of this in the, the interview. One of the quotes was uh, that, that stood out to me. They keep us looking and clicking. I think this wears down certain uh, capacities like willpower by having us make more decisions. And certainly we've covered decision fatigue on the show before. We talked about multiple willpower experiments. Uh, so many of them seem to involve chocolate cake. Right. The most delicious chocolate cake you've ever seen in your life, by the way. Uh -huh. uh, they'll they'll show this to somebody and then they'll have to deal with some sort of uh, additional uh, threat to their willpower, additional decision uh, uh, challenge. And uh, so, so the idea here is that we deplete our video game-esque willpower bar until we have no more choice, till we end up clicking on that ad, eating that cake, or making a digital purchase. And I find I find it rather interesting that we we take for granted the ability to purchase items and have them shipped to us at any given moment, you know, right from our tiny pocket computers. There's this tremendous uh, convenience in this, certainly, uh, but. It also means that when you are at your weakest, perhaps at the end of a long day, in the mo in a moment of foolish pride or drunken confidence, <laughs> you can simply finalize the, pur the purchase of just about anything uh -huh. within just a few uh, keystrokes. It's usually treated as a source of humor 
that people say like I got drunk and bought X on Amazon. Uh-huh. Uh but I don't know that I mean it is kind of funny but it's also kind of not funny. Yeah. Like you're you're in your house and you have essentially like decreased your inhibitions to dangerously low levels with the power to deplete your bank accounts on frivolous purchases while yeah. you're doing this. And it need not involve alcohol or any substance. It can just be a matter of yeah, at the end of the day my willpower was beaten down enough that I decided that I deserve that uh, Blu-ray of Screamers, and I simply ordered it. Like it, like your whole day is kind of building up to that moment when you finally break and give in to not only your your own desires, but also the the marketing that you are you're you're hit with online. Another thing Williams points out that I think is actually really worth considering is the way that the media and attention economy landscape affects political values and changes in society. Right. Yeah, here's a, another wonderful uh, slash horrifying quote from uh, the interview. Quote, radio was a huge factor in Hitler's rise to power. It's why he put one in every house. I think that's an interesting comparison. Marshall McLuhan, a Canadian media theorist, talked about this. He said, when a new technology comes out and we still don't know how to wrap our heads around it, there's an initial period where our sensory ratios, our perception, is reacclimating, a kind of hypnosis moment. He makes the point that the hypnotic effect of Hitler's style of oratory was amplified by the hypnotic effect of this new media, which is a type of information overload in people's lives. Yeah, Williams makes this fascinating connection between the technological attention economy and the recent resurgence of authoritarian populism, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea is that technology trains us to live by impulse, battering down our long-term goal-driven and value-driven behavior one distraction at a time. And what does it do to your brain when everything you really want to do with your time keeps getting interrupted by impulsively tempting digital candy? Does it make you complacent with the idea of impulsive decision-making in other forms, even driving your politics towards things that feel good in the moment, regardless of whatever you think is really right in the long term or in terms of your moral values? This is on top of the effect of, you know, we haven't even really touched on the idea of these platforms rewarding certain types of information mm -hmm. that are often very negative in their political consequences, like fake news being more viral on social media than real news. Yeah, conspiracy theories um, uh, resonating with view with readers more than like a perhaps a, a more stuffy breakdown of what we we do know and what we don't know. Right. Okay. Well, I think we should take a break, and then when we come back, we will discuss options for how to fight back against this state of affairs. All right, we're back. Let, let's get into it. What do what do we need to do to aim our Videodrome cancer gun uh, at the TV screen uh, that is threatening us? I don't know. I mean, so there are several options we could look at broadly. One of them is that we could hope the attention monopolizers will realize what's going on and stop monopolizing our attention. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that they'll that like Facebook and all these big companies and Apple and Google, uh, they'll say like, oh, people aren't really getting the value that they want out of all the time that they're spending with these apps and devices. Maybe we'll just make them less compelling. So people go spend their time on other things. Yeah, let's make our our game needs to be less fun uh, because people are playing it too much. Our product is because ultimately the 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 sad part about this idea is that we're not dealing with people 
We are dealing with corporations. Yeah, which operate like machines. Yeah. They're, they're full of people. Yeah. People make them possible. And in some ca- in many cases, there is a, a particular creator involved, but that creator is only a creator. They yeah. are no longer the master. Yeah. The corporations are mobilized by market incentives Mm -hmm. and market incentives currently in like an ad supported and data collection supported model of, of the technology sphere are going to incentivize for keeping you glued to the device or stuck in the app. They want time on site. They want screen time. They want your eyeballs. They want attention because that's how they make money. Now this does make you wonder, well, what if they had a different way of making money? Could things change then? Like what if technology largely turned to a paid subscriber model rather than an advertising supported model? Then if it didn't matter how much time you spent in an app or on a device, Mm -hmm. would everything be okay then? Because then they wouldn't be nearly as incentivized to keep you using it. Well, that brings us back to the Netflix problem, right? Right. That's a paid subscriber thing. But you notice Netflix introduces – uh, things that seem like they're geared to keep you in the app, yeah. even though it's a paid subscriber model. What is what's causing that? Like the autoplay functionality, the thing on Netflix where it starts playing a movie even though you didn't click on it. Right? Yes. Why does it do that? I think there are maybe a couple of reasons for this. One is that how much time a user spends on an app is somewhat predictive of whether they'll keep subscribing to it. So even on a subscriber model, if you don't watch, you might unsubscribe. So they want you to watch so you'll feel like you're getting value out of the app and stay a subscriber. Yeah, it's one thing to get the get you to binge watch one show. They want you to binge watch multiple shows. They want you to subscribe next uh, month as well. Yeah, because if you realize, hey, I'm never using Netflix, mm-hmm. you, you probably want to unsubscribe, right? Right. Another thing is that the more you use an app, the more data the app can gather about you, and that data is worth money. If not externally, then certainly internally. What kind of shows are resonating with our average viewer, the certain demographics yeah. of viewers, certain demographics of subscribers? Okay, so that's the first option. Hope they'll stop monopolizing our attention. That doesn't seem super likely. Uh-huh. Maybe would work a little bit better if there was more subscription and less ad-driven uh, support for digital content, but not clear. The second option is maybe we can hope that attention monopolizers will shift to monopolizing our attention with things that are truly fulfilling rather than things that leave us feeling unhappy, regretful, and hollow. I mean, think about it this way. What if there was something that was as impulsively addictive as your favorite social media app that you spend hours just mindlessly wandering through, but it made you feel as fulfilled as the stuff you really care about doing? Like it it was full of intellectually stimulating information and stuff that made you feel like I'm really getting value out of this. This is what I want to be doing with my time. Sounds like you're describing stuff to blow your mind dot com. (laughs) I mean, that's actually what we hope. Like we are digital content creators. Mm -hmm. We hope people will consume our content. But I hope I mean, I don't get the sense based on our contact with listeners that people consume us just mindlessly and then they're really regretful <laughs> later. I hope that's not the case. What we're we, what we hope is that we provide value in people's lives. That but increasingly, we have the thing. It, it, I mean, it sounds a little bit tacky to put it in these uh, these terms, but increasingly we can't just market the website and say, go check out this website. It has our content on it. Yeah. Uh, 
it has to go through something like Facebook. Facebook is the way that people get to your content. Yeah, yeah. And so we, we end these episodes by saying like, check us out on social media. Isn't that ironic? But I mean, like that is, that's sort of like if you've got a store that's in the mall uh-huh. <laughs> and you, you think it's good for people to come to your store because you think we have really good products and people get a lot of value out of coming to our store, but they do have to walk through the mall to get to us. Yeah. And maybe they have to walk by six uh, competitors who are willing to pay for better better positioning within the mall. I mean, you, you see that all the time. Yeah. So anyway, can we hold out hope for the fact that maybe maybe everybody will try to do it more like this, that all these apps and these platforms and everything will, will focus on making their experience something that's deeply fulfilling and aligned with people's goals? I think we can't just assume anything like this will happen. Mm-hmm. We can't hold out hope for that. Uh, one thing I want to mention is that uh, there was an example of an announcement along these lines earlier this year. Mark Zuckerberg claimed on a public post on January 11th of 2018 that, quote, one of our big focus areas in 2018 is making sure that the time we all spend on Facebook is time well spent. So he's even using the tag, the, the phrase time well spent. It yeah. sounds like he's been influenced by Tristan Harris and these other people who are making this argument, right? And the main way he says Facebook is going to do this by altering the newsfeed algorithm to reduce the amount of stuff people see from pages and publishers and increasing what people see from friends and family. And this works on the assumption that people like spending time seeing posts and comments by people they know, and this will leave them feeling less regretful than if they were seeing posts by, you know, check out our insane videos or by a podcast that they listen to, say. So, To his credit, Zuckerberg acknowledged in the post, he said, now I want to be clear by making these changes, I expect the time people spend on Facebook and some measures of engagement will go down, but I expect the time you do spend on Facebook will be more valuable. So if we take him at his word here, he's, it sounds like he's trying to say, I want to make my product something that people get value and meaning from in their lives, something that is more fulfilling to them. I don't know if this strategy will work. <laughs> I mean, who knows what the real motives are? I mean, I, I try not to be super cynical about things, but there could be a lot of messaging reasons for putting up a post like this. But I don't know if this will actually make things all that much better. And then on top of that, even if it did make things better, the business incentive for companies generally to do things like this is not there. Like apparently when Zuckerberg announced this on the post, Facebook shares went down 4%. Yeah, because he he might be the, the monster's creator, but he is no longer the monster's master. He can't dictate the hunger of this beast, right. uh, at least not for long. Uh-huh. I, mean, I just keep coming back to the idea of what does a corporation want? And, and not just a, a finite and fixed thing either. We're talk- the, the, This is a beast that swells and shrinks as necessary to survive the changing demands of its economic, political, and social environment. It's a monster that wants nothing short of complete consumption and endless digestion of you, your loved ones, and every generation to follow. It's the hungry, <laughs> jealous God that we could only dream of in ages past. I want to start applauding, but it would sound kind of sad if it was just one person <laughs> applauding. So imagine a crowd applauding. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, I'm being a little negative and cynical about the whole thing. But if it's a monster, maybe the the creator can't control it. But if I know anything about monster movies, is that a hero can sometimes slay it or drive it away. Right. you got to take defensive measures. Yeah. So that's what we should talk about. What can you literally do to protect yourself against having your attention gobbled up by all of these uh, digital slot machines? One 
way you can protect yourself, of course, would be to delete apps or block websites that you discover are making you unhappy Mm -hmm. or making you spend your time in a way you later regret. But that's not always practical, is it? Like some people, us included, need to use social media apps for work. And sometimes you want to have the option to stay connected to friends and receive messages from family through social media, even though you don't want to spend your time being mindlessly hypnotized through a flow of content from it, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So if you want to still have access to these apps and platforms, but to make them less effective at hijacking your mind and and gobbling up your attention, the Center for Humane Technology recommends a few steps specific to mobile devices that will help make them less addictive and less able to hijack your attention. The first one, turn off notifications. That's right. If you haven't already done this, basically, unless it's something you really care about knowing immediately when it happens, maybe like direct messages from human beings, turn them off. Mm -hmm. Don't let that just go to your phone whenever somebody at mentions you on Twitter or whatever. Because the notifications are the foot in the door strategy, right? I can check that one notification. Not only are they distracting, but they get you in there and then they try to push you towards the sale of let's get a couple hours from you on this app. Another thing, this is a pretty interesting appeal. They say switch your phone to grayscale display. Interesting. I didn't even know that was an option. Yeah, get rid of the colors. Apparently you can go into the settings on some phones and – Turn off the color so you just see your phone in black and white or in grayscale. <laughs> and all your loved ones. It's like a- <laughs> well, you can toggle it off and on, right? So if you want to watch a movie or look mm-hmm. at a photo or something like that, you could turn the color back on. Okay. But if you generally have it in grayscale, app designers are carefully – they've carefully researched how to use color to arouse your attention and reward-seeking behaviors. And if you switch your phone to grayscale, it will have less power to lasso your brain with like red flag notifications okay. and stuff. Another thing they suggest, sort your shortcuts. On the phone, you've usually got like a series of screens. You've got a home screen. You can swipe over to other screens. And then you've got shortcuts that get you into your apps. Uh You can choose where to put the shortcuts and move them around, right? So when you open your phone on your home screen, are the apps that drain your attention the most efficiently, are they right there on the home screen? Hmm. Maybe you should put them in a place that's harder to reach, like sort them into a secondary screen. Or or just deeper than that, like like store them six sub uh, folders deep yeah. in, in a prison of your smartphone. Right. So you really have to make a decision that you're going to go into the app. You don't just mindlessly open it every time you unlock your phone. Uh, you know, I, I did something like this for a while uh, with uh, with one of my social media apps. I deleted the app. But I, I still could access it through the browser. So it, it didn't keep me from checking it, but it made it just a little more difficult for me to do it. Yeah. And it, it seemed to help at least for a while. A big thing going back to our first episode here that I would recommend is putting your phone in a different room whenever you can. Mm -hmm. When you're in bed, don't charge your phone right beside the bed. Charge your phone in a different room of the house. When you're reading or trying to do some work or trying to watch a movie, trying to do anything else that you just want to devote your attention to, don't put your phone beside you. Put your phone somewhere else. It's it's a nice idea, but but then you get into issues of like, well, don't I need the phone next to my bed? 
if there's an emergency. Or like for me, I use my phone to play white noise every evening. So oh, I've, yeah. I've become addicted. And granted, I could get a white noise machine and mm-hmm. and uh, and get around that. Well, but. I mean, it's a question of do do you find yourself having a problem? I mean, if you just use it to play white noise and that's helpful to you, then that's fine. Actually, then the device is working the way it should work, the way that it's good mm-hmm. for it to work. It's helping you get what you want. But if you find that by having it there, you tend to open it and you tend to start looking at stuff that's yeah. gobbling up your time and attention in a way that you later regret, that's when the problem comes Yeah, in. maybe it should be playing white noise, but on the other side of the room, yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah. Maybe. Okay. There are also a lot of apps that are designed essentially as defensive weapons against the addictive power of the other apps, right? Mm. Like uh, we mentioned that one earlier moment that tracks what apps you use and shows you so you can be aware. But there are a bunch of apps that do stuff like this. There are apps that block your access to certain websites. So you say, actually, I don't want to be able to go to Twitter.com within the next few hours Mm -hmm. or something like that. Uh, and then there are more recommendations you can look up if you go to the Center for Humane Technology website. But we should point out that these are mundane and specific defenses against certain types of attention attacks from our current generation of personal devices. They don't really address the larger problem that we live in an economy that incentivizes companies to get as much of our attention as they can. They've come up with really smart, really effective strategies for doing this. And their strategies for doing this are only going to get better over time. And they infect so many areas of everyday life that it's difficult to escape them without cutting yourself off from mainstream technological society. I think one of the more like, painful things about this whole scenario is that I feel like the more people grow up with, within this world, uh, you know, the more they, they don't know what it's like to live without this current level of, of overstimulation and right. hyper choice and decision fatigue. Uh, for instance, uh, in my family, we limit my son's screen time as much as possible, uh, but we, we do let him watch educational shows, play educational games, and, but we wonder sometimes if he truly knows what it's like to be bored. Yeah. Uh, and even though you hear kids, uh, still use the word bored, they still talk about being bored, but do they really know what it's like to be left with only your own thoughts to entertain you and pass the time? Uh, are they left with depleted skills for reaching out into the real world around them or the inner world of imagination to, to pass the hours of the day? I do worry about this. I sometimes think about how I'm never bored anymore. I remember being bored when I was a kid, but now I've always got 10,000 things to do that I haven't gotten to yet, and I can access them at pretty much any time. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, I just never really experience boredom. There's always like something I could be working on, something I could be reading, something I could be getting to that I've meant to get to. Yeah. And boredom might be important. That might be an important cognitive space, something that matters for our cognitive health and development. Uh, what about larger institutional changes, though? Yeah, that's something we've got to think about. So here's one thing. Some governments regulate the design of slot machines, right, which are brilliantly created techno drugs that are addictive, that serve the function of draining people of as much money as possible, getting them to play to extinction. Could we also regulate the addictive properties of techno drugs designed to drain us of as much attention as possible to play Mm -hmm. to extinction of our attention? Should the government regulate the way things can hijack our attention? I'm not saying it necessarily should, but it's worth considering that, the costs and benefits. 
I want to read another excerpt from that James Williams essay where he mentions what we can do about this. He says, quote, first, we must reject the impulse to ask users to just adapt to distraction. We must also move briskly past the illusion that media literacy will ever be enough. Nor can we reply that if someone doesn't like the choices on technology's menu, the only option is to unplug or detox. This is a pessimistic and unsustainable view of technology. And of course, we we can't expect the attention economy to fix itself. We must then move urgently to assert and defend our freedom of attention. So he ends up advocating essentially that we need to create a discipline of studying freedom of attention mm-hmm. in order to come up with the right uh, the right philosophy, the right framework, and the right terms in which to discuss this problem so that it's not just something that a few people in the technology ethics sphere are observing, but that it becomes a part of our moral philosophy. Mm. Or even just a part of like, – in, in the same sense that uh, a, a medication has to pass uh, various trials and, and become approved by a governmental body before it can be actually used as a treatment measure – to, to what extent should we get into a situation where an app or some other kind of program or social media interface uh, has to be cleared? It has to meet cer- certain thresholds of uh, acceptability. I mean, it is difficult because the ways in which these technological innovations hurt us are not ways that are acute and easy to identify. Mm-hmm. It's not like they caused us to become to become sick or they caused us to die in the short term. Instead, what they're doing is depriving us of the attention and will to get what we want out of life. And this is something that only gets recognized in the large scale over long periods of time. Yeah, until suddenly you're in a situation where you have to wage a Butlerian jihad against the machines. Right. Well, that that is a brilliant idea. So it goes back to the idea in Dune mm-hmm. that, you know, there there was ultimately at some point in the past history of the Dune sci-fi universe a war between humans and machines. Not all machines, but thinking machines, machines that were too smart and that had hurt humanity's own sense of itself yeah. by recreating uh, sort of humans in the image of a machine. Because they created machines in the image of humans. Yeah, and uh, I, th- I think the jihad aspect is is key here because uh, you know uh, people who are maybe not familiar with the 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 Islamic use of the term, you might just think jihad is war, jihad is some sort of violent act. But jihad means a struggle against oppression, right? And it it, it can it need not be an actual struggle of uh, of physical violence right it can, it can a, take a lot of forms yeah so i mean i don't think it's it's unrealistic or overwrought to think of our struggle against uh uh tension fatigue and uh, the, the 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 design of these various devices as being a sort of jihad and to think of it as a form of oppression now that being said obviously there is a lot of very real oppression going on in the world that is uh that is beyond the uh the scope of mere smartphones mm-hmm. but then it's not like there's there's no interplay between the two because our our devices our apps we're talking about news feeds we're talking about political movements we're talking about um social energy that does impact actual physical oppression in the world and our understanding of it our knowledge of it and our opinions of it yeah exactly so there are two things that I'm trying to juggle in my mind right now. And mm-hmm. one of them is uh, – this is a thing Tristan Harris points out – is that we need to reject the myth that technology is always just 
a neutral tool that you can use how you want it. Technologies have content, and sometimes the content of the technology has a net positive or negative effect on us that's intrinsic to the technology itself. You can't just wave your hand and say, well, well, technology is always just neutral. It's how you use it. Some technologies really do. They really are made in a way that gives us things other than what we want or affects us in a way that we ultimately view as negative. But the other side of this is that we don't have to be technophobic. We don't have to say that technology necessarily is bad Mm -hmm. or necessarily hurts us. Technology in general could serve our best needs. It could be a thing that helped us get exactly what we want out of life instead of subverting what we want to get out of life, right? Yeah. And I guess it's part of our job to think about like how we can each individually work to try to shape the world we live in and the technosphere we occupy to be more like that, to 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 steer it towards a, uh, you know, a, a positive feedback loop with our own goals and desires and dreams and, and interests rather than a place of perverse incentives that drives us towards mindless consumption. Yeah, to to use it as a tool, to keep it as a tool, and to sort of maintain it, to cultivate it as a tool. All right, so there you have it. Uh, fight the power, I suppose. <laughs> uh, hopefully in this episode we, you know, we, we laid some kind of harrowing uh, facts on you, but I think we also provided some hope. We provided some tips, and uh, we would love to hear from everyone out there about you know, for instance, how how it how it goes when you start applying some of these tips to your own use of social media and various devices in your life, or if you have additional tips, additional strategies that you've come across, additional thoughts on the on the topic in general. Um, in the meantime, head on over to stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes as well as links out to those social media accounts. <laughs> and uh, big thanks as always to our excellent audio producers Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. And if you want to get in touch with us directly. To let us know feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, or to tell us your personal story, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 